Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful, wonderful day that you've given us. Thank you that we're alive for it at all, but thank you that beyond this day we have the hope of never-ending days in your kingdom through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we want to be part of your kingdom, and we want to know how to work on earth as it is in heaven. So teach us today from your word. Help us to not only understand the message, but by your grace, apply the message so that we can be that reflection of heaven and hasten the coming of Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Again, we've had, we have several people who are new to our, our group today. Welcome to all of you. Just to let you know what we're doing here. The title of the series is The Doctrine of Personal Ministries. And uh, I, I meant that seriously because there, there is an actual doctrinal position on, you, know, you won't have a fundamental belief for, you know, personal ministries, but it is a theology in the Bible that there is truth biblically in this motif of every member being a missionary. And we've started on day one by looking at how that is how God operates his heavenly kingdom. He sits on the throne, of course, and is the uh, in Revelation 4 and 5, you see that with the seven lamps burning the Holy Spirit, and you have Jesus enters as the lamb slain, and you have the 24 elders and the four living creatures. But beyond that, there's a sea of literally millions of angels. And the Bible says of those angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who inherit salvation? So heaven's government is full, not of watchers, but of workers, right? That they're not just standing there gazing, watching God do everything. He's deploying them. He's delegating authority for them to go and work in his name for his cause. Then we saw moving down to the Old Testament, the church in the wilderness that God called out of Egypt. He not only fed them the manna and gave them water from the rock and then gave them the Ten Commandments and the sanctuary structure, but he also gave them this organizational structure that we found Jethro starting off in Genesis chapter eight, uh, Exodus chapter 18, apologize, um, where he says, what you're doing is not good, Moses. You are the one running everything and micromanaging. This is not how the church should operate. You should teach them the laws and statutes and the work that they would do, Right? And then we see the further organization of it, and we went through this whole thing to show how the not just the sanctuary tent, God's dwelling, is built on a heavenly blueprint, but the whole encampment of Israel was supposed to be a reflection of heaven. And the same thing, then, what God sees in the angels as they're all being his ministering spirits sent forth, right? That's what the church is supposed to be, full of not watchers, but workers in the cause of God. So we built this on a heavenly template. We look at the instruction in the Old Testament. And then yesterday we looked at the ministry of Jesus, that he came to teach and embody that particular truth. That he didn't come just to minister, but to train ministers, right? He understood that his mission was more than just what he was going to do, but that in his name, the church would be built again. It would be built back up. And interesting enough, just like they had the 12 children of Israel, uh, to 12 tribes of Israel, and the 70 elders in the Old Testament. He has his 12 disciples who are then sent out as the apostles, and there's the 70 others also. And why does he do this? Remember Luke chapter 10? Why does he send the 70 out? Because he says the harvest truly is what? Great, but the laborers or workers are few. He said that's been the problem all along. We're trying to get everybody in the working order of heaven, that every member would be a missionary for Jesus Christ, that's what the Old Testament was supposed to be. And now Christ in his ministry knew that he's not going to reach everyone. Now, I know that sounds crazy to say, but personally, directly, face-to-face, -face, 
the overwhelming majority of Earth's population have never met Jesus in the flesh. But they can hear the message of Christ and his representative and understand his character from his word and his messengers who they will meet. And you remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000? That was our title yesterday, Who Fed the 5,000? Jesus could have just done it so much more efficiently, so much more, we figure, effectively, but he had a teaching moment available. He said, I want to try to train you for how things should work. And he deployed every, and he organized them into groups of hundreds and fifties, and they were in ranks. And the miracle came from God. Christ distributed the, 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 the disciples. And the disciples went to those group leaders and gave out, and they passed it along. And Mrs. White picks up on this. She says, and the people to one another. So we can very clearly lay out the case, truthfully so, that the overwhelming majority of people that day did not get their food directly from Jesus or his disciples. But everybody was fed. And she makes the lesson, she says, just in the same way, there's a deep spiritual lesson, she says, wrapped up in this parable for all of God's workers. Anytime we receive, we now have the obligation, the expectation from heaven to go and give to someone else, right? So that's the doctrine of personal ministry. So all we've done is chronologically walked through the Bible's teaching on this format of ministry. We started in heaven, we went to the Old Testament, then we looked at the life of Christ. Where do you think we're going to go next? Acts, the early church. Now we're going to pick up and see, all right, those people that Christ trained, how did they organize the early church? What did that look like? And drum roll, please, it looks exactly like God intended it, right? So we're going to learn from God's word today. I think we already had opening prayer, yes? yes. Okay, well, let's just take our attention to the study itself. I'll also, I want to draw your attention if you just came in. If you'd like the seminar notes, not just the ones we've already done, but even the ones coming forward, now, if you want to go ahead and spoil your fun, you can read ahead and then it can be Mr. Know-it-all when you come to class. That's fine. I appreciate those A-plus students. But um, all five of the uh, lecture notes are going to be at this link. So you can download them um, at your leisure. So, no problem. All right. So, note number one. Note number two. Um, let's go to today's message, which is the Church of Acts. Now, it's a good thing to segue from that Mark 6. Let's go back to Mark 6 and double-check what we had just studied yesterday because it's the introduction to where we're going today. We kind of just went through it for a moment there. But let's look at it again. It's a very short passage. Mark chapter 6. We'll start with verse 35. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, what was the phrase he said? You give them something to eat. Now that's interesting because as we just studied, when it was all said and done, did the disciples give them something to eat? Yes, but how did they give them something to eat? It wasn't them having armlobes of bread and going to every single person individually. It was through the organizational structure that Christ instructed them that they could feed everyone through their ministry, right? So in their minds, they say, well, do you want us to go and buy 200 nerei? So they are starting, they have this picture where it's all on them. We got to come up with the money. We got to come up with food. How is this going to work if it's all on us? And we look at the gospel commission. Go tell the whole world, he said to 12 people. And they're like, uh, how do we do that, right? 
organization is helpful for mission. In fact, that's why the church is organized. Okay? So anyway, as we go back in our story here, that's their mentality going into this experience. It says here, and they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. So we tend to look at this exponentially large problem. He's like, well, we'll just break it down into small bits. Let's organize this thing. Let's just see what you got on hand. And as we talked about yesterday, I believe when they went and found the five loaves and two fish. Now, somebody brought up an interesting point. After our presentation, I hadn't thought of it before, and I thought it was good, so I'll share it with you, that there might have been more than five loaves and two fish, but maybe people did pack lunch and they didn't want to share it. Maybe so they kept theirs and all they could get from the people was five loaves and two fish. You know, that's a bit of speculation, I don't know, but all they came back to Jesus with was five loaves and two fish. And I'm guessing they were like, see, I told you, we can't do it, and Christ is like, that's the perfect place to start. It's going to start small, but we can do big things if we take the right approach. Okay? So, he trains them. And when they sent, we found out and they said, five and two fish, verse 39, then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So, uh, it goes on, so they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties, and my guess is that would have taken an, a significant amount of time. It would have been much faster to say, everyone sit, or even their original idea, everyone go away. That would have gotten it taken care of. But Christ was trying to teach a lesson in this, right? Now, I want you to think about this. They've got a sea of literally thousands of people who are listening to the word of God, and now they have a responsibility to deal with them, do something with them. And so they organize, Christ has them organize them for what's coming next. That's what they learn in Mark chapter 6. I want to keep that as our opening foundation as we go to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, of course, Jesus has his final moments with his disciples, who he now sends out as his apostles. And they still don't quite understand all the things yet, (laughs) but he spends 40 days with them. And I, I wish we had time to get into this study, but... Why does Jesus only spend 40 days with them? He's on schedule. schedule. Thank you. Everything he does is according to, not Google Calendar, but God's calendar, right? He has a a schedule in mind. And so, by the way, for extra credit for the scholars in the room, where would he have gotten that schedule? Don't just say the Bible. But specifically the timing of when to go. Yes, right. The feasts of Israel, right? Leviticus talks about those and they talk about in their time and there's a schedule for them. And he knew it has now been 40 days since the whole Passover weekend when he was that lamb, the anti-typical lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he knows, look at the text. He, he talks, he infers this here, right? Says who, uh, we'll just start with verse one. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. By the way, Acts was written by whom? Luke, so this is Luke, this is Luke the sequel, if you will. This is second Luke, okay. Until the day in which he was taken up after he, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. So he spends a few days, 40 days with them, and he gives commands with them, to them, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. I have my own little pet idea of what that might be, um, and I'll just share it with you very briefly. You can take it and do whatever you want with it. But notice he didn't just present himself alive. He did, he did that presentation of himself alive with many infallible proofs. 
Well, me being alive and in your presence is a pretty good proof. <laughs> what other evidences could you show? What other proofs could you, you know, reveal? Thank you, brother. What was it? Other people. Other people. Did Jesus bring to life other people? Yes. Did he take them with, them to with him to heaven? Absolutely. Sister White makes it very clear that as he ascends into heaven, he takes with him what she calls the wave sheath. Of course, Jesus Christ is the wave sheathed himself, right? But it's, it's, it's always a bundle of grain. It's not just a single straw, right? So Christ comes with himself and evidence that not only did God raise him up, but through him others can be taken to heaven too. So I think this is a pretty interesting thought. But we can, can continue. Being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to God. So he's 40 days and he's talking about the kingdom of God. And then he starts explaining to them their mission. After being assembled and being assembled with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Holy of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, question is when? Not many days from now. So he's on day 40 saying it's not today and it's not tomorrow, but it's not going to be three weeks from now. It's just a few days from now. There's a schedule. He knows. That's right. Therefore, he's like, so I'm on a calendar and it's time for me to leave. In a few days, just you'll get what I promised, right? Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He's literally about to step off of planet Earth. They're like, real quick, can you explain Bible prophecy? And they're like, <laughs> and I love his, he's like, just stop. Don't worry about that. <laughs> and he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you, he's like, this is the important point. You need to be focused on mission. You'll understand the doctrine. Don't worry, we're going to clarify that. The Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. But right now, here's what you need to focus on. Go to work. And here's how you work. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Acts chapter 1 verse 8 seems to be the thesis statement for the entire book of Acts. You're going to be my witnesses, and here's how it's going to unfold. First in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. It's going to start with you right here, and it's going to end up covering the whole earth. And that's a daunting task. He tells 12 people, you're going to go tell the whole world. I'm going to leave now. Right? And he says, the Holy Spirit's going to empower you. You have all the resources you need, but just go to work in the manner in which I tell you. I also think it's interesting that Jesus had already sent them out during his ministry. So they're used to going out on mission trips, little miniature mission trips, right? But now their whole life was going to be devoted to full-time mission work. So they put this into practice during the time of Christ, earthly ministry. And now he says the Holy Spirit is going to come. Of course, Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is Christ's representative, right? And Mrs. White makes this clear also. And Jesus himself said, it's good that I go away so the comforter will come. And it's another comforter. So they're not going to be without Jesus. He said, where two or three are gathered, I am there in the midst, right? through his representative power of the Holy Spirit. So Christ has his part to do, but he's going to immediately swap out with the Holy Spirit, who is also God, and will lead them into all truth and empower them for their work. So, and uh, let's see here. 
In the few days that uh, after Jesus departs, and I like to, anytime you're doing a, a Bible study, you can always point out, uh, verse, have people read verses 9 through 11 when you're talking about the manner of Christ's return, and look at how many different ways they can talk about visibility in these just passages. Let's walk through it real quick. Now, when they had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly at heaven, he went up. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go up. Five different words that all mean looking, seeing, right? Visibility is a big part of the... Somehow the Christian church has gotten this idea that Christ's coming will be invisible. There is no secret rapture. You're going to see it. You're going to hear it. It's going to be personal, global, audible, visible, the whole thing. But you're already convicted on that, so we'll keep going. So what do they do in the meantime? Christ takes off, teaches them these last lessons, and says, look, we don't have time to talk about prophecy right now. You're going to be about your mission. You'll understand when the Holy Spirit comes, but I got to go. Now, Jesus could have stayed there longer, but he couldn't stay there longer, right? Because he was on a schedule. Now, what do they do in the meantime? Well, first of all, they don't leave Jerusalem. Why not? He told them not to. He said they're going to go to the ends of the earth, but not yet. So they've gotten used to whatever Jesus says when it says to go on missions. We do exactly what he says. So they stay in Jerusalem. Now, there was an ecclesiastical task, a church organizational task that they had to take care of first. And what was it? Yes, they, had to, they only had 11. Now, think about this. Why is that a big deal? And there's probably several valid answers here, but, I mean, they could have just said, well, we had, you know, 11 out of 12 ain't bad. We lost one. You know, we'll, we'll limp along here. But they don't. Yeah. That's right. There, there, there's like, it's almost that God has set up this organization and they're going to be faithful to it. Oh, by the way, I didn't bring this out. Uh, in Clint Walleen's book, about, Clinton Walleen is one of the Biblical Research Institute uh, associate directors, and he has a book about that issue of women's ordination, and we're not going there now, but he does make an interesting point, and he draws out from Scripture and from the spirit of prophecy that it's true, that even amongst the 12 disciples, there was organization within them, that they were subdivided, into groupings of three, that four groups of three, and they had key leaders. And each of the, it's a, and every time you and you go through this and go through and you look at the list, anytime the disciples' names are listed out, they're always listed in order. And they've got these certain leaders, these with these two, and this one. Anyway, it's fascinating. I don't remember what the organization was. I, you would think for this seminar I would have put that in, but it's just the parallel of north, south, east, yeah. west around the sanctuary. Beautiful. And so you have this symmetry and this, this organizational structure that God has set up. And they can't go out there with 11. Now, so when they go to ch- pick people, they have qualifications for who's to, who's to uh, stand in a place, right? And, uh, and by the way, they also not only got this from Jesus, but look at verse 20. For it is written. Notice they got their organizational structure for the church from the Bible. For it is written in the book of Psalms. Let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Sure, God chose Paul. 
he was, you just said it, he was like an apostle. And he says, I have all the qualifications, but this little urban legend has gone around the church sometimes that somehow they made a mistake. That Matthias was just like man's choice and God's real choice was Paul. No. First of all, as we go through this, you notice that they prayed, they dedicated the Lord, they're obeying his commands and they get a clear answer. Secondly, spirit of prophecy makes it abundantly clear that God was in that decision. Paul had a distinct ministry. His apostleship was no doubt relevant and he makes that clear, but his was a different ministry. It was interesting, okay? There's a time gap. There's a time gap. There, there are different factors. And of course, Paul did not. What was one of the qualifications of one of these 12? That's right. He had not walked with Jesus through his ministry. Now, wait a minute. Before you get us, I've had this thought too, but did not Paul, does that saying that Paul just had that one vision and that was his whole experience? No, no, no. He spent some time where? In Arabia. And according to Sister White, what was he doing in that time? Three years communing with Jesus. He spent, right, so he says, I'm like the apostles, just like one born out of season. I'm not an accidental child, I'm just a surprise, you know. I have a different ministry, but it's equally valid, but it's it's different, right? My point is that they're organizing the church in preparation for their mission. So, therefore, says verse 21, of those men who have accompanied us all the time that Jesus, Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. They didn't see it as an interesting side note to round off the corner. They says it has to be this way. Scripture said so. Jesus said so. And here are the qualifications. And they proposed two. So they could have had 13, right? Does that mean, by the way, that Joseph called Barsabbas was some way Less qualified? No. They did all that they could, and they brought the selection to the Lord, and the Lord chose. Okay? And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen. So again, this is not, here's the one we select. Um, I'm not going to get quite into it right now. Yes, yes ma'am. Beheading is quick. <laughs> yes, but you say early on, yeah. Uh, that's a relative term. He's, he's in the book several times, in the book of Acts, so I don't know my chronology enough to be able to tell you what year he died or something like that, but he, was, he wasn't just like day one. The first Christian martyr was Stephen, and then they started dying after that, you know. But um, anyway, I, I do want to make a little case here, and we'll see it again in Acts chapter 6, that we should not denigrate the nominating committee process. That when the people of God come together to choose people for leadership and pray over that decision and do their best to match the qualifications and do what they can do and say, Lord, this seems to us, but we want to pray and lay it before you and take it to the people. For When the nominating committee calls, don't be dismissive. Now, that's not to say you should accept every call because everything that was do, but you pray about it too. But don't be like, no, 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 I was, I, was, I, was, I was aiming for elder this year. No. That's not, or that one doesn't fit me. I no, 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 no. If God's people have prayed about a thing, have looked at the organizational structure and the needs of the church at this time, and they think that you would be willing to fulfill that, you would do well to fulfill that, and through prayer they've invited you, you should take heavily. I'm not saying you have to take it as like you must do it. 
because then we would have an appointment committee, right? But seriously consider it and pray about it sincerely. Anyway, so they prayed, and it says, uh, verse 25, to take part in his ministry and apostleship from which Judas felt by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven. I like that it says numbered. It didn't say he was just with them. He was numbered with the eleven. And his number was one, and their number was eleven, therefore making twelve. Okay. Now, it says, when the day of Pentecost came, had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, so they were organizationally prepared. This, to me, is an interesting parallel back to the Old Testament organization, which the Lord had them do before they went to meet the Lord when he came down on the mountain, right? In the Old Testament, they organize first, and then they're prepared for their mission. Same thing happens in the New Testament church. They organize, and they're prepared for mission. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting, then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire and one set upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Just like we don't need to talk about the secret rapture more than just mentioning it here, that the Bible clearly indicates that it's not going to be an invisible thing. Also, we don't have to guess as to what the gift of tongues is because it tells us further on in the text. that It, does, it literally lists out the nations and therefore languages that were represented. These were not some heavenly, what they call glossolalia, some sort of unintelligible gibberish. What made the day of Pentecost confusing was not that they couldn't understand the language. It was exactly the opposite. It's because they could understand the language. If you went to a place that had a bunch of different nations represented and you couldn't understand anything, all of a sudden, everybody who talked to you talked to you in your language. You're like, how? Right, so I don't know how or why that's happening, but I know what it's happening, right? And that's exactly what we see here. Verse 5, and they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Notice that all the nations are where? Under heaven. This is not some heavenly language. These are earthly languages. The Bible goes out of its way to point that out. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused. Why? Because everyone heard them speak in his own language. They were confused not because they couldn't understand, but because they could. And it lists them out, right? Verse 12 says, so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? What they were confused about was the significance of it. When we heard this wind from heaven, which of course we remember in Revelation chapter 5, that's when the Lamb of God comes back in looking as it had been slain and the Spirit of God is sent out into all the earth. And this is the earthly perspective of it. The other side of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes down, fire and wind and the speaking of these other tongues, and they question Whatever could this mean? So, as he is wont to do, Peter stands up, standing, verse 14, with 11, raised his voice and said, and he launches into a sermon. If you were to go and look at, and we're not going to go read word for word the rest of his sermon in Acts chapter 2, but the, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost was 26 verses long. It was... Exactly half of those 26 verses are simply direct quotations from Old Testament scriptures. 13 of the 26 verses are just quoting scripture. So we can very easily say this is a Bible-based message, right? 
He wasn't preaching popular opinions or even his own personal testimony. Powerful as it is, the authority is not in his experience, it's in the Word of God. And he's making a point about something. What is the point that Peter is making in this sermon? It is not, I'll tell you, about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is simply the ability to give this message. He's given them the the opportunity through the big noise and wind to get their attention. He's given the ability to speak in the other mess in, in the other tongues. And but when the message comes, he uses that tool of speaking in tongues to preach the word. And he doesn't just say that Jesus was born in a manger. I'll take just 30 seconds on this. When we say we're going to go give the gospel, we say, oh, what is the gospel? Oh, it's the good news about Jesus, which is true. But my further question is, what about Jesus is the good news? People say, oh, that he came to be God with us. Oh, then good. Then we'll tell the Christmas story. So if we put on a Christmas pageant and we tell the story and read the text, have we given the gospel? <laughs> yeah, some people know, some people say yes, some people say a little bit, some say incomplete. And for instance, we could talk about how he lived a sinless life and grew up and it was an example for all of us and his sinless life, that's great. But even his sinless life is not the gospel in its totality. We can walk down this path even further and say that his death on the cross, be careful now, but I'm going to say it, even his death on the cross is not the gospel. Paul himself would write, for if Christ is not risen from the dead, you are still in your sins and your faith is futile. You've got to go past the cross to the resurrection. We serve a living Savior, amen? But Peter didn't just preach that Jesus came as a baby. He didn't just preach that Jesus lived a good life. He didn't just preach that Jesus died on the cross, nor did he preach that he's even been resurrected, which there's even presenter truth than that on the day of Pentecost. What is the most up-to-date present truth he could give about Jesus on the day of Pentecost? This is what you got to do about it. No, 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 come on, come on. About Jesus. His power, that's good. But I'm talking about literally through the chronology of Jesus' life and ministry. What's the latest thing Jesus has done? Yeah, he has been resurrected, he has ascended into heaven, and he's the high priest. He's been accepted by the Father, he has sat down at the right hand of God. He was telling them up to the minute, that day, present truth. Now, let's see it in Scripture. Acts chapter 2, he gives this beautiful sermon, he quotes all of that Scripture, and by the way, he also gives us the state of the dead. <laughs> I love this. We've got church organization. We've got the truth about the second coming. We've got the, uh, the, the state of the dead. Look at verse 29. Because he, he quoted David from the Psalms, and people are like, oh, was David talking about himself? And he clears up that misnomer. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. David is dead, he is buried, and we can take a field trip and dig him up if we need to. He is that dead. <laughs> Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection, not of himself, but of whom? Of Christ, right? So notice he's preaching the resurrection of Christ from the Bible-based principles, uh, uh, truth, that his soul was not left in Hades or the grave, nor did his flesh seek corruption, this Jesus God has raised up. And then notice what he says, of which we are all witnesses. 
By the way, Christ didn't just appear to the 12 disciples with his many infallible proofs, which I believe are those other raised up people. What does the Bible say about those other raised up people? In Matthew chapter 27, what do they do? They went all through Jerusalem showing those many infallible proofs, right? The Bible even says that Jesus was seen by several hundred people, right, before he left. So there were many people in that crowd, not just the word of Peter. He's like, trust me, I saw him, wink, wink. How do we know? Well, we've all seen him. We've all seen the evidence of this, right? And by the way, how long has it been? This is the same crowd. Think about the feasts of Israel. You have Passover and unleavened bread, right? Then you have, what's next? First fruits. <laughs> then you have the Feast of Weeks, right? First fruits is the resurrection, where the wave sheaf is raised up. That's when Christ came out and showed himself, right? The wave sheaf. And then, it, then 50 days later... After seven weeks, 49 days, on the 50th day, you have the Feast of Weeks. Pentecost was not some experience that they had that later on they said, let's call it Pentecost. Think about it. Why were all the Jews there before the Spirit was poured out? Because it was the Feast of Weeks. They just, the New Testament term for that is Pentecost. They were there to celebrate an Old Testament feast, but Christ is the fulfillment of them. So in the same way that Christ is the fulfillment of the Passover and Christ was the fulfillment of the first fruits, on the day of Pentecost, Christ becomes the fulfillment of the Feast of Weeks. So he's preaching present truth that that day, this is what Jesus is doing in heaven right now. Friends, as Seventh-day Adventists, we have a message to preach about what Jesus is doing in heaven right now. If we just stop at the cross, or even the resurrection, or even, I would dare say, the intercession of Jesus in the holy place, we still haven't preached the whole gospel. we got to preach all of Jesus. Amen? Bible-based, present truth. By the way, in that sense, I wish the Seventh-day Adventist Church were more Pentecostal. Seriously, when we, take, when we take that notion of Pentecostal, it's become a synonym for charismatic, has it not? And what images come to mind? Screaming, shouting, jumping, right? There's going to be some loud music and crazy band, you know, speaking in tongues, unintelligible, which the Bible clearly told us was not what was happening. There'd also be faith healing, all kinds of stuff. Look at what you see in the day of Pentecost here. Was there any mention of music? Now, that's not to say that music is bad. I'm not getting the music debate. I'm just saying it wasn't ever mentioned. Clearly, it wasn't the driving force of whatever they did that day, right? Also, there was no faith healing. Now, I have no problem with being healed by faith. If the Lord so permits, that's great. But it just wasn't a hallmark of the day of Pentecost. It didn't happen. There's no mention. Also, notice he wasn't just preaching fiery stuff out of his own personality. He was just quoting scripture. He was preaching a Bible-based, present truth, straight-to-the-heart message. And what was the result? Well, let's take a look. In Acts chapter 2, after he does this whole... Verse 32 again, this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, so is even more than his resurrection, is his exaltation to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So the Holy Spirit that you were asking your question about at the beginning, let me tell you why that Spirit was sent. It's because of Jesus and his present truth ministry. The Holy Spirit is just the evidence that I can stand here with confidence and say that God is on his throne. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And so he sums it up in verse 36. 
Because by the way, 13 verses are direct quotation from Old Testament scripture. 11 verses are just explanations of what those scriptures were saying. And the last two verses were what? An appeal. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly. Notice, how can they know the present truth that he's preaching is true? Because it came from the Bible. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, and then notice the little phrase he adds there, whom what? You crucified. This is not some abstract theory, some ethereal philosophy. You guys were the ones chanting, crucify. You were, some of those people that day had literally exclaimed, let his blood be on us and our children. Just less than two months earlier. But now, when that mob mentality is gone, the fog is cleared and they had the straight message from the word of God, it hits them like a two by four across the head. Oh my goodness. We murdered our own Messiah. How lost would you feel if you realize I killed God's son? And that's the conviction we see when, Jesus, when he says to them, know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The one that was hanging on the cross is now sitting on a throne and he has your life in his hands. <clears throat> Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were, what's the phrase? Cut to the heart. What does that mean? They were convicted. First of all, they were convinced that what he said was true because it came from the word of God, right? By the way, this is what you want to do in any Bible study. Convince them from scripture and the Holy Spirit will go to work to convict them that this applies to them. So you have the work of convincing through conversation. The Holy Spirit does the work of conviction on the heart. But does that mean that they're going to be converted? Not necessarily. That last step is up to them and their surrender. What do they do in response? Right? So they're convinced by the Bible. They're convicted by the Holy Spirit. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They're ready to put their faith into action. They don't even know what that looks like. Praise the Lord, Peter didn't say, oh, there's nothing you can do. You're all lost. Just wanted to let you know. No. The remedy for them is the same remedy for us, by the way, in the book of Revelation and the Laodicean church is what? Repent. Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children. By the way, I think that's such a neat phrase, especially after they are the ones who said, let his blood be on us and on our children. He said, I'm going to buy you back and he's going to take back your kids too. It's a relationship of faith. You're not predestined by your past or by God. You choose this day whom you will serve. <clears throat> for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many of the, as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them. So apparently there was more than that sermon. He gave them some practical instruction, apparently, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. 
And we're going to get to, you kind of launched into this whole theology of what happened on the day of Pentecost, but we're looking at the church, right? Now let's look at verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were what? Baptized. Let me tell you something about church membership. It's predicated on an understanding a faith relationship with God informed by the word of God. I know that we take some flack in Christian circles and even sometimes within our own church. Why are we always pushing Bible studies and evangelistic campaigns and all these things you have to go through before you can get baptized? Can't you just love Jesus? But friends, the love that we have for Jesus is only built on a knowledge of his word. Right? These people were convicted by the truth, and when they yielded to that, now you can be baptized. Right? And so they were baptized, those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now, how many were in the upper room before this event? 120? 12 leaders, 120 total? So it's roughly the size of maybe, say, one local church. Okay, that's what the whole Christian movement, by the way, we weren't even Christians yet. They were just followers of Jesus. Christian would be a moniker given to them by the outside. They never called themselves Christian. They got called Christian when they were always going on and on about Jesus. What a great problem to have. Uh, Mark Howard brought this up that, you know, you know, when John Wesley built up the Methodist church, he didn't call it the Methodist church. That was a moniker that they, people gave them. It was kind of a pejorative. Oh, you've got a method for this, a method for that. You've got a, you got a bunch of Methodists. Yeah. Why were the early Christians called Christians? It was Jesus this and Jesus that and everything's about Jesus. Yes. A bunch of Christians. Yeah. It's a great problem to have. Anyway. Um, it says here, about three souls and thousand souls were added to, to them. Notice it also says they were added to whom? To them. It does not say they were added to Jesus. I want to be careful. Were they added to Jesus? Yes. But what is the body of Christ? The church. Right? By the way, if you skip down just a few verses, it even clarifies that more. Look there, um, verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to what? The church daily, those who were being saved. So, when people come to Jesus, they join his body, which is the church. Make no apology. Why can't I just get baptized in Jesus? Why do I have to join a church? Friends, when we try to separate Christ, who is the head, from the church, which is the body, we're spiritually trying to decapitate Christ. I'm going to follow the head, but I don't want to have anything to do with his body. That's not right. And it's Christ who said, come join my body. So they join the church, and now the church goes from 120 to 3,000. Is that good? Yes. Will it bring logistic problems? You better believe it, right? And so notice how those issues get solved. Verse 42, what's the first response of these converted new members of the church? And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. I, I have to rail on this one point too. Oftentimes, the case is that people will come to one evangelistic campaign, go through one set of Bible studies or something, and they'll see that it's true, they'll understand and acknowledge it, and they'll join the church through baptism or profession of faith or something like that. 
And they're like, good, now I understand it. Got it. I got this taken care of. I'm good now. And while Seventh-day Adventists rightfully rail against the notion of once saved, always saved, we somehow subtly are okay with once learned, always learned. Right? Like, oh, I came to the message in 1984, and I haven't left. Well, good. You're not supposed to leave. <laughs> that's, that's the minimum, still being here. I don't know where we got to this notion that, hey, I haven't left the church yet as a mode to celebrate. You're never supposed to leave the church. The, but as soon as they got converted by the present truth message, they went right back over it again. And they continued in it, steadfastly, daily studying it. Let's look at the text. Verse 42 again, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So they're studying together, praying together, eating together. It's a beautiful picture. In fact, skip down to verse 44. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So as this faith community comes together, they have logistic issues, some have more or less, some might have different concerns. And how did they remedy those problems? Well, anytime there was a need, someone saw the need and they addressed the need. They took care of it personally, as anyone had need, right? That's personal ministries. That's a very heavenly thing to do. If an angel sees someone need, you're like, hang on, let me go, let me go get somebody. Let's form it. Now, I'm not against committees and organizations, let me be clear. But they see a need, they go address it. It's beautiful. And look at the result. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So it wasn't just the 3,000, but through the ministry of those 3,000 who were daily sharing their faith and helping others out and doing all the, that the church continued to grow. It's not they got to 3,000, all right, and they waited until the next evangelistic campaign, then they got another 2,000. It didn't go in chunks like that. It happened according to the Word of God. How often? Daily. Now, I don't know if they got 3,000 every day, but each one was out there winning one, and daily the church was growing. This is Acts chapter 2. I'm going to go over to uh, Acts chapter 4 now. Acts chapter 4 you see basically the same thing happen again. Um, they pray for boldness, right? After there's an imprisonment and they're arrested and things are starting to have a little persecuting flavor to it as this message starts to become noticeable and uh, you have, have thousands of people at a time and daily more are joining it. It's going to cause a little bit of a stir. And so they have some persecution going on, some oppression. And uh, anyway... They, they pray for boldness in verse 31. We're probably familiar with this passage. Um, they pray for boldness. By the way, if someone prays for boldness, what does that indicate about that person? Yeah, they don't have boldness, right? They recognize there, there's a timidity there. And they're like, Lord, we know it's true, but we need to have the courage to, even if it's not popular, go and say the truth, right? So they're praying for boldness in the face of the persecution they might face. When you're going out, I'm guessing you as Seventh-day Adventists, I'm making the bold assumption everybody in here is Seventh-day Adventist, and if you're not, my apologies, but whatever truth you have of God that you're going to go to share, um, you know that it may not be received well. When you go to knock on a door, 
It's not necessarily always going to be, thank you, I've been praying for you, come on in. I have a pet theory on this too. I think that more people, (laughs) I think the reason more people don't go knocking on doors and asking people if they'd like Bible study isn't because they're afraid people will say no. I think they're afraid people will say yes. We've all kind of been geared up. All right, fine. It's outreach Sabbath. We're going to go to door to door and we're all going to get the door slammed in our face. It might get a cuss word or a dog or something. <sighs> but there's almost, I hate to think of it like this, but like there, there might be this like, I'm going to go out and do this thing because I know it's the right thing to do, but I'm expecting it's going to be a no. And so I, when we go out door to door, we're just bracing for the, the cold, fierce wind of rejection, Right? We go to that door and we're expecting like, get off my porch, get out of here, you Christian. And you're like, oh, I've been wounded for Christ. Right? And you go back, it's like, oh, I did my part and it didn't work out. But at least we had the board. But I'm guessing there's not a lot of people who are expecting, hi, I'm with Bible study offer. Oh, great. Please come in. Can you start right now? You're like, uh, (laughs) exactly. I wasn't geared up for a yes. All we know is we just kind of think we're going like sheep to the slaughter when we go out there. But friends, God has people out there. The Bible tells us, the Spirit of Prophecy tells us, the Bible tells us the harvest is great, the workers are few. Sister White says that there are people who are just waiting for the invitation and you might run into them one of the times. So we should be expecting yeses and be prepared to deal with noes, but looking forward to the yeses, right? Because now if they say yes, then you actually got to follow through. And that's going to take like, I'm going to share this with you. And now I've got to schedule, I've got to come back and see you again. And that, that, it's at the work. Getting rejected is quick and easy. Right? It's much easier to die for something than to live for something. Right? Getting beheaded. You ask, how long did he live? Well, real short. <laughs> you know, but the real challenge of the Christian life is not just one glorious, Christ did the sacrifice in that way. Our goal is to be a living sacrifice. Right? Anyway, I don't know where we got off on that, but we'll continue. Acts chapter 4, oh, the timidity, they were play, praying for boldness, right? And look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And as it say, and they spoke with tongues. No, what do they speak with this time? Boldness, because what did they need? Boldness. What did they need in Acts chapter 2? Tongues. So what did they get? Tongues. The gift of tongues is not some specialty gift that's the really the highest order of gift that you can give and it shows that you're specially favored. No, it's a tool given by God to do his work. On the day of Pentecost, they had people from every nation under heaven, so what do they need? Tongues. Here, it's not the day of Pentecost, they're just in Jerusalem and everybody's speaking the same language. What they don't need is tongues, what they do need is boldness. So they pray for the Holy Spirit to give them boldness and the answer is given. So they speak the word of God with boldness. Now what's the result? Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. What does this sound like? The results of Acts chapter 2, right? Sounds like the day of Pentecost again, right? And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and... Now, here's where it's different. Now, I want you to pause here, put your finger here, and go back to Acts chapter 2, see if you notice the difference. Acts chapter 2, the church, the body of Christ, the faith community, whatever language you want to put to it, verse 44 says, Now, all who believed were in common and had all things in common, 
who were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So when there was a need, people sacrificed and gave to the need and they gave directly to the cause. Right? Now look at Acts chapter 4. What's different? That's right. Nor was there anyone who lacked for all who were possessors of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. Now, the spirit of benevolence is, benevolence is good. The right motive is there. But what is the first step starting to happen here? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, there's a separation now. They're giving the goods to the apostles, and now it's the apostles' job to distribute. The people are going to lose out on a blessing of the distribution, but what's going to happen to the apostles? Now they've got two jobs, to go preach the word and to hover over the churches and distribute all the things that people need, right? This is our first inkling of pastor dependency in the Bible. Well, at least since Moses, right? But they're reverting back to a pre-Jethro organizational structure where they're just going to go to the Moses himself for every little need. Now, now it says apparently they did things and everything was getting along fine. It worked out well. Again, in verse 36, it says, And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So now the, the liquidation of your own possessions to give for the cause of Christ is still happening but it's now being routed through the apostles for them to be responsible for the distribution. Now that's key as we go to Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, so the church is still growing, right? So that 3,000, they already added daily, and then boldness came, and they added more, and now in Acts chapter 6, it's still continuing, so we don't know exactly how many are there, but it's a good number now, in the thousands, literally. When the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a what? Complaint or a murmur. I like to make the joke that now the church is officially organized. You know? <laughs> because there's a complaint. But look at the nature of the complaint, the specificity. What's the issue? There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in what activity? Who was doing the distributing of the daily distribution? The apostles. Who were they grumbling about? The apostles and their distribution. There must be some favoritism. There must be some Hebrew versus Hellenist, which, by the way, amongst the disciples, the apostles, there still was. We don't have time to get into this either, but Peter... What, why is Acts chapter 10 in the Bible about Cornelius? Remember, what would we say Paul's job is? To go preach the Gentiles? But he wasn't the first one sent to the Gentiles. It was Peter. And did God say, go preach the Gentiles? Yes, sir. No, 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 no. <laughs> what had to happen? Remember the whole sheet vision, right? Three times? No, 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 I won't do that. And he still, after the vision, didn't know what it meant. And then that's when the knock on the door, and the Holy Spirit says, Three men are at your door, go with them, doubting nothing. Don't come back with this, but I don't go, just, just do it. 
You'll sort it out on the way. Just obey. You don't understand yet. Just obey. Boy, if this is a lesson I want to teach my children. (laughs) Don't come to me with the whys or wherefore or why couldn't, couldn't we. Don't. mm. I have no problem answering any question, but you obey first. Obey and then you understand. Right? Look at Acts chapter 1. Remember that? I mean, don't look at it. Maybe you can, but I'm saying, remember what we just read in Acts chapter 1. Lord, at this time, are you going to? It's not for you to know that right now. Go do the thing I said to do. You'll understand along the way, right? We'll get there. Here in Acts chapter 6, we're in Acts chapter 6, right? (laughs) Um, Where where were we just talking about? I just lost my mind. I said Acts 6. Oh, yes, Peter, Acts chapter 10. Thank you. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter was called to go to the Gentiles, he didn't understand. The Bible specifically says while he was trying to figure out what this thing meant, they knocked on the door. And only in the going, in the sharing the gospel, he say, and now I see that what God meant was I shouldn't call any people unclean. He's like, oh, thank goodness I don't have to eat pig. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm, I'm not going to do it. Yet. Because, by the way, those, those principles were timely. People like to say, oh, this clearly shows that you can eat anything. No, it doesn't. It clearly shows Peter wasn't eating those things. And he still wasn't eating those things. And it demonstrates something that they would understand as unclean in order to get something that was incorrectly ascribed as unclean, right? Anyway, let's keep going. Acts chapter 6. There was a neglection in the daily distribution and a complaint arose. Verse 2. Then the twelve. Now, before we even get there, has there ever been a time when these twelve Matthias would have been there too. He just wasn't part of the 12 at that time. But let's be very accurate. But these disciples, now apostles, have they ever had a circumstance in their prior experience where there are thousands of people before them and they needed to distribute things? Yes. Why did Christ do the feeding of the 5,000 the way he did? Because he was training them to build a church. Yeah? I'm guessing, if you've ever had that deja vu, like, everything seems very familiar here, you know? They're like, where have we seen this before? A whole bunch of people, they got to distribute, it's on us to do it. Yeah! And so what do they do? Look at Acts chapter 6. What's their remedy? Then the twelve of them... Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. They understood, there's my job and there's your job. Is there anything wrong or bad or ignoble in any way about serving tables? Local church ministry is fantastic. But they're saying that's not our job. We've been given a mission. We're supposed to start here in Jerusalem, then go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We've got to oversee this whole thing. We can't just be here being the doling out to you and you and then back again the next time there's a church What's their resolution? Therefore, brethren, seek out from where? From among you. Friends, I'm not joking. This is a nominating committee. You get together and organize who you think would be good at this. Here's qualifications you have to go by, but use your best judgment. Choose people to help this work go forward. 
Therefore, men and brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer into the ministry of the word. There is automatically seen a necessity of cooperation between the full-time ministers, preachers, pastors, evangelists, and the lay members of the church. If this thing's going to go forward, it's going to have to be this way. Okay? They understood that, and I am firmly believing that that's exactly why Jesus fed the 5,000 the way that he did. Because he knew that they were going to run into just such an experience, and they need to be prepared to organize the church for service. Okay. So, and one of the very first miracles in the early church, verse 5, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. (laughs) I don't know if we've ever seen that miracle repeated, but anyway. And of course, they chose Stephen, and he goes through and lists them off Philip and all the others there. And of course, Stephen's going to play a big role in Acts chapter 7 when he becomes the first Christian martyr. Acts chapter 8, Philip's going to take a key role when he goes and, you know, has the conversion experience with the Ethiopian eunuch and the chariot and the baptism right there. Notice that Acts chapter 7, that first Christian martyr, the Ethiopian with Acts chapter 8, these are both lay members. These are not apostles who were sent out. They are lay people who have local church responsibilities and at the same time are supposed to share the word of God. Every member is expected to be a missionary. That's how the early church grew. Anyway, um, and what was the result in Acts chapter 6? After they laid their hands on these people, prayed for them in their ministry, while the disciples had theirs, the apostles had theirs, and these local disciples uh, had their different ministry, said what was the result? Verse 7, then the word of God, what? spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So the result of the organization was a growing, healthy church. Beautiful, beautiful picture. Now, let's continue. Acts chapter 8. When Stephen's death occurred, he basically gives the same, I have to take 30 seconds on this, He basically gives the same sermon that Peter gave on the day of Pentecost. He uses different texts, but he goes through the history of Israel because now he's before the Sanhedrin, right? He's before the leading rulers. These are the same ones that crucified Jesus. And now Stephen is there defending the truth about Jesus Christ, presenting the present truth. And man, look at Acts chapter 7, verse 51. When he gets to the appeal... Oh, by the way, what was one of the things that Stephen was preaching in that present truth message? It was the heavenly sanctuary. Let's just start with verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern they had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor with God before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. He goes through the history of the earthly sanctuary, right? Starting from Abraham in the wilderness, I mean, and Moses in the wilderness, and then uh, uh, David, and then Solomon actually building it. But then he adds in verse 48, However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has not my hand made all these things? He's preaching the truth about the heavenly sanctuary. 
They had put all their hope in the earthly sanctuary, the earthly temple. And he said, but there's a heavenly, there's a high priest, there's a ministry there. And as he's about to go into it, apparently it is at this point, and we have to surmise this, at least is my conjecture, that as he's preaching the truth, the transition from the earthly sanctuary to the heavenly sanctuary, something must have happened in the crowd because look at the very next verse. His speech is interrupted and he goes straight to the most cutting appeal. Verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. By the way, when Jesus preached to people, the Spirit of Prophecy tells us that he was watching their eyes. He was looking for signs of conviction, for interest, for the awakening of the conscience. And I would imagine you can know when they just turned off. And he just watches, and they're like, Psh, they start talking, and we're grumbling. He's like, ah, forget my sermon. I'm going to write to the appeal. You stiff-necked it. And he goes, and he lays out this rhetorical question. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? I'll give you a minute. Think about it. <laughs> Name one prophet who they were like, thank you for that beautiful rebuke. We'll amend our ways. And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. It's the same message that Peter gave on the day of Pentecost. You killed your own Messiah. It's Bible-based, present truth, cutting message. And notice the response, verse 54. When they heard these things, they were what? Were they convicted by the truth? Yes. Were they convinced from Scripture? Yes. But were they converted? No. There was nothing wrong with the speech that Stephen made. He did everything right. But he's not responsible for the conversion. He's merely responsible for the conversation. And the Holy Spirit will lead the conviction, but the conversion, that's on them. Are you going to yield to that? Notice the response this time. When they heard they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth, then he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And so here's the present truth, right? They're standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's, you can imagine the imagery of the serpent on the pole. Just look. Well, it was about to. Look, <laughs> yes. So, notice it didn't just say he understood that Jesus was there. He could look and see it. Strong indication that Christ was literally standing there, just like that serpent. All they had to do was lift their eyes and look to Jesus. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears. La, 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 la. Wouldn't look up, close their ears, it's like they're trying to put up a physical barrier so the truth can't come in. And ran at him. And here's one of those phrases we see in Acts a lot. With one accord. By the way, if you study the Bible end to end, you'll see at least as many times that Satan brings his people into one accord as God brings his. Satan knows the power of unity. Think about the Tower of Babel. Right? Although they are one, they can do anything. There's a reason that Satan wants to tear down the unity of the remnant movement. Anyway, and they cast him outside the city and stoned him and, and, he, and it introduced us to Saul and we got, we got to move on for time's sake. But now notice what happens, verse, chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul was, Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of what? Judea and Samaria. 
Interesting. Why are they going to Judea and Samaria? Because they had a, a conviction. We got to go win those Gentile souls. Nope. Why? Persecution shoved them out. They were running for their lives. But what did they do along the way? They were all scattered. And notice this also, except for whom? The apostles. The only ones who stayed at home base were the apostles. Peter, James, John, those guys. So when it says they were all scattered, who are we talking about? The other disciples, the members of the church. Verse four, skip down to verse four. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere waiting for the disciples to follow. (laughs) No, what does it say? They went everywhere doing what? Preaching the word. Every member was a missionary. Now, let me comment from Acts of the Apostles on this. Oh, let's finish our Bible study real quick. Go to Acts chapter 11. Verse 19 picks it up exactly, dovetails over. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the whom? Was there still some, the gospel's just for the Jews mindset? Yes. But a few of those folks, what it says here, but some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. A few of them let the cat out of the bag and started talking to Gentiles. And lo and behold, the Gentiles were interested in the gospel too. And notice the response, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in where? Jerusalem. Who's in Jerusalem? The apostles, right? And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. Why was he glad? He encouraged them all with the purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. And why was he glad? And why did he encourage them? Verse 24. For he was a good man, (laughs) full of faith, a fellow of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people added to the Lord. The word got out. Did you know that they're preaching to the Gentiles out there? These lay people are out there just talking to everybody. Let's go, let's go oversee what they're doing. Let's be careful. They sent out Barnabas and Barnabas sees the evidence of their work for the Lord. And he says, good job. High five. Keep it up. We're with you, man. And the Bible says the reason he said that, because he's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. He knew that this was how God's work was supposed to go. Anyway, let's look at Acts of the Apostles as we close today. Acts of the Apostles, page 105. The persecution that came upon the church in Jerusalem resulted in giving a great impetus to the work of the gospel. Success had attended the ministry of the word in that place. And there was danger. Now think about that. The church was growing in Jerusalem. They were having successful ministry. They were now organized for service. Everything seemed to be going good. But what was the danger? Here it is. There was danger that the disciples would linger there too long. Don't even let me start with our giant institutional churches. Look it up sometime. Look up the phrase mammoth institutions in the spirit of prophecy. She has this interesting statement. She says, never, never build mammoth institutions. She also says, in another place, it does the church no good to have two or three ministers waiting upon it. Just throwing that out there. Okay. 
Yes. But by the way, I'm not, I'm not being facetious about that. She literally says both of those statements. And there are churches today that not just have a pastor and an associate, but then they'll have an intern, and then they'll have a children's pastor and a youth pastor, and then there's the, and you have Bible workers. All of these people are paid employees. Now, there's nothing wrong with those people doing their work, but my concern is there's a danger that instead of doing Bible work, oh, we hired us one of them. See what I'm saying? And we become separated from that personal ministry's work that's supposed to be the heartbeat of the church. Let's keep going. Success had attended the ministry of the word in that place, and there was danger that the disciples would linger there too long, unmindful of the Savior's commission to go to all the world. You get in a big institution, you're like, hey, there's thousands of us here. Amen. Hi. Huh? I'm going to talk to them for a few more minutes. All right, here we go. That was not my kid. It was somebody else's kid. <laughs> anyway, forgetting that strength to resist evil is best gained by aggressive service. They began to think that they had no work so important as that of shielding the church in Jerusalem from the attacks of the enemy. Instead of educating the new converts to carry the gospel to those who had not heard it, they were in danger of taking a course that would lead all to be satisfied with what had been accomplished. To scatter his representatives abroad where they could work for others, God permitted persecution to come upon them. That persecution was, I didn't say it was sent from God, but it was definitely allowed by God. He said, let's just use this as a little, get on out of here, right? God permitted persecution to come upon them. Driven from Jerusalem, the believers, quote, went everywhere preaching the word. She continues, Among those to whom the Savior had given the commission, go ye therefore and teach all nations, were many from the humbler walks of life, men and women who had learned to love their Lord and who had determined to follow his example of unselfish service. To these lowly ones, as well as to the disciples who had been this, with the Savior during his earthly ministry, had been given a precious trust. They were to carry to the world the glad tidings of salvation through Christ. When they were scattered... By persecution, they went forth filled with missionary zeal. They realized the responsibility of their mission. They knew that they held in their hands the bread of life. It's an interesting phrase from that feeding of the 5,000. They had received, but now they're holding on to bread. They knew they held in their hands the bread of life for a famishing world, and they were constrained by the love of Christ to break this bread to all who were in need. The Lord wrought through them. Wherever they went, the sick were healed and the poor had the gospel preached to them. And not one of them was an ordained apostle or pastor, if you will. Amen. Yes, sir. I just, I like what it says, uh, the strength to resist evil is best, best gained by aggressive service. It's, it's two-way street. Right? Yes. So it's not just about It's not just for them. Right. What does Mark Finley say about soul saving? God put me in the soul saving work to save my soul, right? It keeps up on us. It gives us character. It gives us the service. We in fact, in the book Education, she talks about how, uh, oh, what is the phrase that she says? When she talks about respectable conventionality and the danger of it, how we can have a patina of Christianity or Adventism, but we're just living the same world everybody else is, just in a respectable way. Right? So the danger is that, th that the only training for fitness with, for heaven is service with God, Right? I messed up that language there a little bit, but the only thing that fits us for that is service for God. I'm going to finish this statement if it kills us. Can we go to 50? All right, even if you said no, we were. <laughs> they realized the responsibility. They knew they held in their hands the bread of life for a famishing world. Oh, yeah, we finished that one. Yeah. So my point was this. All through Acts chapter 2, 4, and 6, we see a growing church 
And in Acts chapter 6, we see an organized church, and that's good. They became good members of the church in Acts chapter 6, but they became missionaries in Acts chapter 8. Right? So they're organized first, and then they're sent out on their mission. Anyway, let me finish with this statement. Acts of the Apostles, page 109. The unselfish labor of Christians in the past should be to us an object lesson and an inspiration. The members of God's church are to be zealous of good works, separating from worldly ambition and walking in the footsteps of him who went about doing good. With hearts filled with sympathy and compassion, they are to minister to those in need of help, bringing to sinners a knowledge of the Savior's love. Such work calls for laborious effort, but it brings a rich reward. Those who engage in it with sincerity of purpose will see souls won to the Savior for their influence, the for the influence that attends the practical carrying out of the divine commission is irresistible. Isn't that a powerful thought? That if we were to take up this work, individual, personal ministry, and start with what we've got. I may not be able to do a whole seminar series. I'm not going to be Mark Finley. But what I have, I can share. And start with that cycle, you know, start with their felt needs, this kind of thing, the actual needs, then sow the seed of the Word of God, take the time and cultivate that Bible study interest, then make appeals and call, and then put them to work as laborers, and this is how the work is supposed to go forward. Have we been clear? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so, so much for giving us such practical instruction in the Word of God. We're so thrilled with the biblical principles and the broad truth, but you give us a laser beam of instruction as well. Help us each to see our part in your work and by your grace to do what we can, by your power to do what we can't for you. So Lord, bless us and let us see this last generation church have an experience equal to and surpassing that first generation church as we look forward to and hasten the coming of Jesus. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.